You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 28th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Alliance Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme... We're making the decision that for government employees, for government equipment, it is better to not have them access TikTok. Canada bans video app TikTok from all government-issued devices. The EU and parts of the US are already blocking access to the Chinese-owned app amid concerns over data privacy and security. Protest and international criticism of Mexico's controversial electoral law reforms that critics say will threaten democracy. We'll check in with our Latin America affairs correspondent. We'll also get the latest business news with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. And finally... See this guy here? That's the toughest opponent you're ever going to have to face. I believe that's true in the ring, and I think that's true in life. Now show me something. TV and film commentator Ashanti Omkar will join us with the top picks to look out for on the big and small screen, including Creed 3. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. TikTok, the video sharing platform, is enormously popular with young people, but the app faces intensifying scrutiny from Europe and America over security and data privacy concerns. It's owned by ByteDance, a Chinese company that moved its headquarters to Singapore in 2020. Josh Coles, a researcher at the University of Oxford's Internet Institute, joins me now. Josh, for those of us no longer in the first flush of youth, what is the purpose of TikTok? Well, TikTok is an extension of uh, many social media platforms that have gone before, uh, but its real innovation has been to combine short form videos, which uh, mean that you can kind of rack through lots and lots of video views in, in one sitting, with a very sophisticated algorithm, which seems to project, predict with almost uh, unbelievable uh, accuracy exactly what you might want to see next. And so combine this with the efforts of millions of content creators and uh, now billions of users, and you have a pretty uh, attractive app, both for the people who want to be making the videos and people who want to be watching them. Um, but as you notice, much of the uh, issues that we've, we'll be talking about today result from the fact that this uh, is a spin-off of a Chinese app. So tell us then, why are governments concerned about it? Well, evidently, um, TikTok is, as with any social media platform, collects a lot of user data. Um, so everything from things like location to keystroke data and even some biometric information as well. That's not new uh, for social media platforms per se. Um, but the fact that, as I say, this is a Chinese company or that it is uh, owned um, by ultimately by a Chinese company uh, does um, create the perception, at least, uh, that there may be um, some security and privacy challenges within, uh, with what is done with that, uh, that data. These moves by um, uh, governments in the West uh, reflect these concerns, but I think it's just the start, really, of a potentially much longer battle over the fate of the network itself. And, and do you think that these fears are justified? Well, certainly TikTok um, doesn't have a, a clean slate when it comes to how it has used data and also just generally how it has gone about its business. It had to apologise late last year for tracking uh, Financial Times journalists 
uh, uh, to try and work out where some leaks were coming from from within TikTok. So clearly uh, pretty secretive uh, in terms of its own corporate practices. Um, and it has been in this ongoing um, debate with the uh, US government over what to do with all this US data that it gathers. As you say, it moved its headquarters to Singapore in 2020. It also made an agreement with uh, American company Oracle to store uh, US data and process it in the US uh, at that time. Those debates are still ongoing. Uh, and so in the meantime, until we have a, a clearer picture of what the particular US government, but also other governments in the West want to do uh, with the platform, uh, how and the extent to which those security concerns are uh, addressed, is going to be a matter to wait and see on. Is there any evidence that TikTok interfered in the recent Canadian elections as alleged? I think hard evidence on this is hard to come by. And one might say that it's not in TikTok's corporate interest to be seen to be uh, influencing elections in that way, because obviously, as we've seen with, with Facebook back in 2016, that caught a lot of flack for the data leak um, that, that came from Facebook and that ultimately uh, may have played a role in the elections uh, in the US and UK in that year. And I think that reflects the point, really, um, the broader point here, which relates to all social media platforms, is that the data that they collect is very sensitive and is potentially very powerful in the wrong hands. So whether it is a US company or a Chinese company or any other company, um, the ability, what this data can tell you about individuals does have enormous both economic value and political consequences for uh, for those who might have access to it. So to the extent that this represents a wake-up call for what is done with the social media data in general, I think this is only a good thing. And I mean, what is this? where does this fit in the context of the broader geopolitical spat between China and the West? Yeah, I think I think that's pretty impossible to avoid, really, as we know, you know there's much wider geopolitical um, tensions going on at the moment between the West and China as it relates to Ukraine, uh, as it relates to uh, broader technology supply chains and, and, and things like that. So this is really the, the, the tip of the iceberg, I think, when it comes to those broader tensions. Um, so that's impossible to, to avoid. But the question is whether uh, that means that the fact that this is a Chinese company necessarily uh, makes this uh, a problematic uh, situation um, for for social media uh, in general. Uh, I think, you know, the Biden administration in the US is considering quite a range of options now in terms of what it might do about TikTok. I think at one extreme end, there could be just a, a full-on ban of the app, uh, the platform in the country as a whole. Currently, it's, it's just been limited to government officials who possibly shouldn't be uh, using social media anyway, uh, and uh, on, on their on their professional devices. Um, but but if that's extended, that would be a, a real um, a real move. On the other hand, uh, it could potentially be sold to a U.S. company, which would be another way potentially of, of solving uh, the problem uh, that has been identified. Or the Biden administration may want to just reach a kind of ad hoc arrangement with TikTok um, to, to make uh, to, to make the changes that need to be made. But I think that may prove politically more difficult now for the Biden administration, given the bipartisan push within Congress, to do more on TikTok. And indeed, the steps announced by the Biden administration uh, over the last couple of days are uh, direct results of congressional uh, instructions to do so. So clearly, I think the political winds are changing uh, and pushing in the direction of a more hawkish view uh, on China as a whole in, the, in, in Washington, but also as it relates to this particular uh, platform, no matter how, many, how popular it might be with its millions of users in the US. And do you think that banning it now is too little too late? I mean, presumably all that data exists now. TikTok has it. Yeah, this is the, this is the thing about personal data, isn't it? I mean, once it's been obtained... Uh, you can do a lot with it. You can share it, you can copy it, you can ultimately manipulate it to to, to make it um, sort of tell you things, if you like, about the people to whom it concerns. 
So the, data, the fact that the data has been collected, and as I say, this is not, not just the case with TikTok, but for all social media platforms, that data exists. Companies keep hold of it because it has enormous economic value in terms of how it can potentially be monetized uh, through the use of uh, adverts. Uh, and so the fact that, it's, that there has been a default within the social media industry to retain data and to see it as a valuable commodity does mean that there's, I think, a, a bit of a... Um, uh, a sense in which governments are a bit behind the times. We've had warnings since at least Edward Snowden, then in 2016 with Cambridge Analytica. There certainly has been plenty of evidence that social media platforms in general uh, have uh, have had a lax uh, approach to data, both in terms of security, how you control it, and in terms of what you do with it. So maybe this is a, a late uh, wake-up call, um, better late than never, I guess, but it does mean that some of the restrictions that have been put on most recently onto TikTok may be a case of trying to close the stable door after the horse has bolted. Uh, and, and Josh, just finally, as an ordinary citizen with really no consequential secrets who just wants to watch you know, videos of puppies and people lip-syncing to sea shanties, should I be getting rid of it from my phone? Should we all? Well, I think that's a that's um, you know a decision for everyone to make. I think even if um, we had no concerns about the, the Chinese government's role in this, let's say the fact is that, as I said at the top, TikTok has um, really mastered this idea of recommending content that it thinks you want to see. And even though your data may be secure and um, well stored and, and everything else, and in the right hands, nonetheless, I think there is a more subtle point here, which is that the sort of loss of autonomy that comes from these recommendation systems, which think they know what you want to see, encourage that on you, and then that kind of creates a bit of a reinforcement feedback loop with what you then go on to see after that. I think in some ways that's the bigger um, threat to, to, to freedom, if you like, individual autonomy in the long run. So if only to uh, preserve the kind of randomness of, of uh, chance encounters online uh, with, with content you might not have wanted to see necessarily, but, but now do, maybe it's better to explore other platforms as well that create a bit more organic uh, recommendations in terms of what you see uh, and interact with online. Thank you very much, Josh. That's Josh Coles, a researcher at the University of Oxford's Internet Institute. Now, here's Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Fox News owner Rupert Murdoch has admitted some of the network's anchors endorsed false claims that the 2020 U.S. presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump. The comments appeared in a deposition as part of a $1.6 billion lawsuit by the ballot tech company Dominion Voting Systems. Japanese authorities are filing criminal complaints against the country's largest advertising firm and five smaller companies over alleged bid ringing for Tokyo 2020 Olympic contracts. It's the latest corruption scandal to emerge after the Games. And Hong Kong is to drop its COVID mask mandate from Wednesday, nearly three years after it was enacted to prevent the spread of the virus. The Asian city was one of the last places in the world to still require people to wear masks in almost all public settings. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Laura. Now to Mexico, where the populist President Obrador has forced through legislation to slash the budget of the National Electoral Institute and weaken its supervisory powers. Well, joining us from Montevideo is Lucinda Elliott, Monocle's Latin America affairs correspondent. Lucinda, welcome back to the programme. What is Obrador's motivation for this? Well, it appears Obrador really wants to turn the clock back. I mean, back in the 1990s, a comprehensive reform of Mexico's electoral authority was considered a real seismic shift for politics and put the country on a path to what were considered fairer democratic elections among the LATAM nations. And this is his second attempt to 
undermine the institute that he accuses of being uh, very costly and corrupt and even after more draconian legislation actually failed last year and I think what it says to outsiders is you know watch out for the next presidential race and do consider that Mexico is mirroring other populists in the Americas and maybe it's time possibly for Mexico's allies and friends to speak out because the country holds presidential and also congressional elections in 2024, in which Obrador is, is keen to really cement his political dominance. And observers are raising a red flag and saying, you know, should this be allowed? How should politics in Mexico be viewed? And especially under this leader who, despite not being able to be re-elected, remains extremely popular. Mm. And I mean, so clearly these present problems for democracy in the country. Uh, What does it mean internally, but also for Mexico's international reputation? I think more broadly, Georgina, as I say, it it is sort of raising a, a red flag and saying, you know, should we start to speak out? Because given he is extremely popular, there hasn't been much attention brought to uh, domestic politics in Mexico. And I think because the country is holding these these big elections next year, um, in which, as I say, you know, he's very keen to sort of cement his power and continue and nominate a successor. I think this is a time where people need to sort of stop and have a think really about where it's going, because it is a sense that, you know, that, that, that the country is going backwards and not forwards. Now, there's more controversy in the country. What can you tell us about the former head of Mexico's security forces and his role in a prominent drug cartel. So Gennaro Garcia Luna, he became the highest ranking government official in Mexico to be convicted over links to drug trafficking. Um, A jury in Brooklyn, New York, returned the verdict uh, last week following a four-week trial in which members of the cartel, once run by El Chapo Guzman, Uh, testified that Luna had accepted millions of dollars worth of bribes from the same criminal organization that he was supposed to be bringing to justice. And the trial, which has been avidly followed by Mexicans, highlights how corruption has obviously undermined efforts to stop the illegal drug trade. But also, it's become a political moment in Mexico where the president, again, has used it to fuel allegations that his predecessors were all corrupt, Uh, in particular that the former president, Felipe Calderón, who narrowly beat AMLO in the 2006 election. So this is more than just the trial of one man in the US. This can be used as well to discredit a whole administration in Mexico and really adds to Obrador's argument about the electoral authority and the credibility of that institution. Mm. Now, the phrase made in Mexico is a, is a phrase that's commonly used by that very Sinaloa cartel-affiliated street gangs. So usually this is tattooed on their own skin, but prisoners have also been inking a cat who's now been rescued. Can you tell us more? It's a bizarre story. So a cat has spent weeks in the Mexican city of Juarez under the care of rescue workers after police found him in a jail where the feline, which is a sphinx or Egyptian cat, as we say in Spanish, had suffered mistreatment at the hands of this criminal gang. Um, They'd had tattooed the cat's furless skin. And the rescuers have, have found a family to take the cat. So tomorrow, the final decision about the adoption will be made public by city authorities. I didn't realize there was so much bureaucracy for cats in Mexico. Uh, Apparently, you couldn't apply online for adoption. You had to actually go in person to the administrative department in Juarez, which you'd think that that might prevent people, but that hasn't stopped people at all because local reports say more than 200 requests to adopt this cat were made. Um, And then there will be a ceremony, a cat handover ceremony, 
with its new family. So a, a very strange one. And as we know, Mexican prisons do not have a good reputation. So good to know that he was saved. Well, at least, that, yeah, a happy ending for the cat. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Lucinda Elliott, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Briefing. The Concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle 24 with me, Georgina Godwin. Let's get a roundup now of some of the day's business stories with Ewan Potts from Bloomberg. Hello to you, Ewan. Hi, Georgina. Good to speak to you. Uh, some unwelcome news on inflation today. Yeah, bond, uh, bonds are selling off today. We've had not one, but two unwelcome inflation uh, readings. French CPI has accelerated to its highest on record. This is on record since the the, the euro started. 7.2% in the year to February. It's not as high as some parts of Europe, but it is uh, a record. And that was worse than economists were expecting. And Spanish inflation, uh, we were expecting that to tick uh, slightly lower. That has actually uh, risen in the latest reading with high electricity and food prices uh, adding to that. Now, the story had been, has been on inflation uh, is that things have been getting better. Most readings have been heading downwards. In America, we've been seeing inflation head lower for about six months now. So this is pretty unwelcome to see inflation going in the other direction. Uh, investors are ramping up bets on where interest rates are going to go with the European Central Bank. Uh, for the first time, money markets fully pricing in getting to 4% on European interest rates. Remember, we're at uh, 2.5% now. Uh, Investors at the beginning of the year thought we would get to about 3.5%, but now uh, there are bets that uh, things uh, are going to get worse on the interest rate front. So inflation really taking a bit of a a turn for the worse in at least two of the big euro area economies. And pushback on the idea of uh, changing the US inflation target. Yeah, this is a a speech by um, Fed Governor Philip Jefferson. He's defended the central bank's 2% uh, inflation goal. Uh, Now, you remember that uh, US inflation has been way above this for a long time, but we are coming down. But it looks like we've got a long way to go until we get back to 2%. He says that the shortage of workers has been a key reason why price increases in core services have remained high. Uh, And labour costs have been rising very rapidly in the US and in a number of other uh, Western economies. Uh, Now, Fed officials in their most recent forecast estimated it's going to take until 2025 to get inflation back down to the 2% uh, target. But there's an increasing debate amongst some commentators and economists as to whether 2% is the correct target for inflation. Of course, if we shifted the target up to 3 or 4%, uh, then we would hit it much quicker and there would be less need for inflation. applying the monetary break and for the danger of a recession uh, or higher unemployment. 
it's quite difficult to judge where to set a, an inflation goal. Of course, one of the things that we don't have or we have much less of than we have had for decades now is disinflation from China. Of course, China's uh, Chinese goods have been uh, flooding into the West at incredibly low prices. That has brought down goods inflation uh, massively uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. And, and that process uh, is no longer uh, helping to bring prices down so there is a a a case to be made for a structural adjustment to our inflation target but where to put it exactly is tricky philip jefferson uh, says he doesn't want to move that target because he thinks that will affect expectations and it will undermine the credibility of the federal reserve if you start shifting the target then people say well uh, how realistic are we going to are we going to get there Mm. and you and just before we go uh we understand that uh, the british prime minister rishi sunak has managed to hammer out a deal with ursula von der Leyen of the eu over the northern ireland protocol has this affected markets at all yeah, it's been a fascinating story to watch, hasn't it? And I think for the first time, we've seen some quite significant concessions from the EU. There was definitely uh, a warming of that relationship. When you watch the press conference between von der Leyen uh, and uh, Sunak, there was clearly some chemistry there, which we have not seen uh, since, uh, well, since at least 2016 between the UK uh, and the European Union. So incredibly politically important. We don't quite know what's going to happen uh, in Northern Ireland with the politics around that. Of course, we have to get the DUP on side and there's some uh, tricky conversations to be had there. In terms of markets, uh, it's not been a massive uh, story, actually. Uh, the pound and UK stocks not reacting hugely to it. There was a bit of a blip up uh, in the pound yesterday as the uh, agreement was announced. Uh, but I think this is uh, really, for markets, it is uh, a borderline story. The, the the wider story for the UK economy, it, it is important, of course. Trade with the EU is enormously important. And that trade has been declining over the last few years. So it's an important economic story for the UK, but uh, markets, uh, not really that bothered. Ewan, thank you very much indeed. That was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts, and you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. let's look to the world of film and TV. And joining me is Ashanti Omkar, who's film, TV and culture commentator. Ashanti, uh, welcome to the briefing. Now, there seems to be a huge interest in boxing at the moment, particularly from new and younger audiences. Now, you saw Creed 3, that's the overall ninth instalment in the Rocky film series. How was it? Oh, gosh, I was actually really blown away by it. I didn't quite know what to expect when I went in there because Michael B. Jordan, who is, you know, playing this titular character of Creed, he has actually directed this film. And I I kind of thought, wow, this is this is a new thing for Michael B. Jordan to also play himself, you know, play that character and also direct himself. But he has done a fabulous job with it. And he has his formidable foe. We're, we're, most of us who watched uh, the Marvel film uh, Ant-Man and Quantumania, Jonathan Majors has come in as his fantastic character of, of Kang. And it feels like he has done this in parallel where he's brought this antagonist character that that is deeply you know it's deeply jarring when you watch him and you're 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 feeling very frightened when watching him but you also see a lot of male vulnerability you see the the backgrounds these two you know they were boys who knew each other when they were younger here they are as men and things have changed and one of them has become spectacularly 
successful. It, that's that's Michael B. Jordan's uh, Apollo Creed character. Uh, uh, sorry, Adonis uh, Creed <laughs> character talking about his dad there, Apollo Creed. And uh, with uh, Jonathan Majors as Damien, a.k.a. Dame Anderson, who's been in jail for 18 years, he's come out with nothing, but he wants, wants this championship. And boxing, as you said, is something that audiences are, are really looking into. The younger younger generation are really into sports and seeing sports films and these sorts of, sorts of franchises, franchises are really working at the moment. And I wonder, just talking there about male vulnerability, uh, if, if that has changed over these massive nine films, if we've gone from really it being very, very macho and that kind of sentiment not being expressed to a much more, uh, for want of a better word, woke way of dealing with it now. Indeed, indeed, you're, you're 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 spot on. What we are seeing now is that we can see these guys expressing their most deep feelings and and those saddest moments from their lives and the the horrors they have faced as children and being able to to kind of cry through it. Which I felt very gratified seeing that. And also on top of that, we are getting to see, for example, in this this particular film, you're getting to see that that Creed now has uh, you know he's married to Tessa Thompson character Bianca, who is a pop star. She has hearing uh, difficulties. They have a, a child also who everybody talks to with sign language, which again, this is not the sort of series we saw back in the day. You know, we never saw this in any franchise. We are seeing that people can live normal lives, even if they have a disability, for example. And that felt really, really good to me because I feel like normal normal life is being mirrored a lot more without this veneer of, hey, we're really macho guys. You know, you get to see a little bit of that, but you also get to see this other side, the flip side, which I feel is so important. Mm. Now, tell us your thoughts on Consultant, which is on Prime. Mm, oh my gosh, I I'm, I'm, I actually have a smile saying this, even though this is a very, very dark thriller. Christopher Waltz, who has two BAFTAs, two Oscars, one of the, uh, the best actors out there, he he comes in playing the consultant. And I come from the co- a corporate background where I've seen the consultants come in and take over a workplace so quickly. And this is exactly what he does, but he's one solo consultant who walks into this company called Copware. He's, he's very mysterious. So this guy, his name is Regis Patoff. It's a name that will stick to your head from the minute he walks in because Christopher Waltz embodies this character so well. He's walking into a mobile gaming company. The CEO has been mysteriously murdered. I don't want to give you a spoiler to say how, but let's just say you will gasp when that happens. And this is a, a young 20-year-old CEO who is uh, who is Korean and he has been, you know, his name is Sang. And uh, when, he, when he's kind of topped off, this this guy walks in as a consultant and he takes over the company in a way that will will dazzle you it will shock you it'll also kind of remind you of workplace politics the way people maneuver themselves around each other how people want to move ahead and what they are willing to do to do that it sounds like you're giving that one very much the thumbs up Absolutely, hundred percent. It, it, I, I binged it in one, in one, one go on on Prime Video. <laughs> Uh, now, the other night I watched The Strays on Netflix, and yeah. I understand you've seen it too. What did you think? 
Oh gosh, yes, I've seen it. I've also had a chat with Ashley Madekwe, who plays Neve, aka Cheryl, in the in this film. And the the film is a very interesting look at racial dynamics and kind of racial politics of suburban England in many ways. Because here she is, you know, Neve plays this kind of upper class woman. That's what we see. But the very first scene gives us a glimpse of her past life. And what happens is is that she is this socialite now in this community in the suburbs. She has two beautiful children. She has this wonderful husband who supports her. And she's a deputy head teacher. But her past life was she was sitting in, you know, a council block, very unhappy. Obviously, in the, in that past life, she has been, you know, she's been a victim of domestic violence, and she has she's run away from that. She's left behind uh, her children from from that that relationship, moved in completely in this new world. And uh, Nathaniel Martello White, he himself is biracial, and he has brought in a lot of nuances, things like colorism and how a black woman's hair is looked at. And this woman has this collection of wigs. I'm sure you saw that, and mm. maybe we're quite surprised by it that scene. Well, I mean, I I thought the whole thing was slightly mannered, I must say. I, I found mm. it just a little bit, I don't know, some of it a little bit uh, following tropes and stereotypes, perhaps a little bit too much. I have to say, though, I thought the ending, which obviously we're not going to spoil, was mm. absolutely brilliant. Absolutely, I agree because we see Buki Bakari, who is a BAFTA winner from Rocks, playing Abigail, and Jordan Myrie as Marvin. And these are the the this is the past coming to to haunt Ashley's character of Neve. And that that end scene is very disconcerting. And like you say, we felt like this was you know, walking into the Us universe by Jordan Peele, because, you know, or the, the Get Out universe by Jordan, Jordan Peele, that has obviously been uh, an inspiration to Nathaniel, the director. And and certainly there's a lot to think about. I, li- I like films that, even if they are imperfect and flawed in themselves, if they bring about discourse and make us think, that's something that I'm, I'm very much in support of. Ashanti, thank you very much indeed. That's Ashanti Omkar, who's a film, TV and culture commentator. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Tom Webb and our studio manager was Nora Hull. And the show's back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll join you on The Globalist first thing tomorrow. Goodbye and thanks for listening. 